Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Contagious Smile, where every smile tells a story. I really hope you're ready for a lot of face soreness this morning because I have Nate with us this morning. He has such an amazing, exceptional story and is just the nicest guy. I just really, I asked him, is he always this nice? Because he really is. He's like that guy that that you just want to be around all the time, which is so hard to find these days, most definitely. And he has done so many amazing, amazing things. I don't know how we're all going to fit him into this episode. But before we begin, I want to thank you so much for finding the time to be here with us today. Nate, thanks. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's my honor. You have not only done the most amazing things, but I would love for you, if you wouldn't mind telling us about the dad thing that you did. And if you don't mind dropping in the digital part, because that's hilarious. Okay. So uh, we, we were talking before the show started about, about being, being parents. And and the reason why you and I are both on this show is because of our relationship with our children. And I did not want to be a father. I'm a product of, of eight of the 10 aces adverse childhood experiences. And my wife is a product of seven of them. And combined, we are um, people with nine of those 10 aces. So given that background, we often would, would tease our, today, we call ourselves um, like the toys from the Misfit Island from, I think it's yeah, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Santa Claus coming to town. I forget which one is what the name of the story is so long ago. But um, it's not like two people knowing that they're messed up, deciding that they want to somehow find a way to be a parent and not mess something else up. And so I was in law school at the time when she says she wants to um, have a, have a baby. And she tells me that her biological clock is ticking. And I say to her, your clock is digital and you cannot hear it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> she has no parts of that. And, and so, right. So I acquiesce. And, and honestly, here's the part I did not mention to you that when I agreed that we should have a, a child, she had flown out to LA um, she was recruiting for a university and and I decided I was going to surprise her and I flew out to L.A. and I sat in LAX for about 12 hours because her flight was delayed. She was traveling from Houston and there was bad weather. And so I sat in the airport and I waited and waited and waited. And long story short, um, we had an adult time a little bit later after arriving at the hotel. And after which I said to her, you're pregnant. And she what? said, get out of here. What yeah, get out of said, here. I said, you are pregnant. I had, I have a premonition. You are pregnant. She says, okay, Nate, man, whatever. Right. Less than 30 days later, she wakes up. She runs off to the grocery store because she's a little bit like a vampire. So you could be asleep and it'll be three or four o'clock in the morning and she's not in the bed. She's out doing whatever vampires do. So <laughs> she comes back, it's about 5 a.m. And she says, it's plus, it's plus. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I, I you know, I, it's early. I get out the bathroom, bed and I go to the bathroom and I'm going to go to to pee. And I look and I see <laughs> an early pregnancy test on the counter. And I'm like, OMG. <clears throat> and I see the plus. And now I'm like, I don't know what to say to her. Do I congratulate her? Do I say. Hand her a know, digital clock. Right, right. Do, I don't know what to do. But I know at that moment that we're going to be, we're going to be parents and decide that I'm in law school at the time and I'm going to graduate soon and no, I don't have any job offers. I have no prospects and realize that what I don't want for my child, that the one thing I felt like I have control of is to not put my child in a situation where they're like me, where they've invested a bunch of time and money into something and don't see any way of getting in return from it and said, hey, 
how could my life be different? And if my at this point in my life would have been different, I thought if I'd gone to a different law school and no matter what grades I'd gotten, if I'd gone to Harvard, um, no one would have cared what kind of grades I had. They would have just introduced me and you would have today too. Hey, I'm introducing you to Harvard Law graduate, Harvard attorney, Nate Turner, which I'm not. I went to Valparaiso and you'd say, well, where in the world is Valparaiso? Because no one cares. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's figure that out. And so we wrote Harvard, got an application from Harvard and used the application from Harvard to backward design a child's life. The application asked three things. One, for great grades, which that seemed to make sense to us, but also embedded in the application were two other great things. One was that they were looking for students who were world citizens, which was in 1994, which meant to me nothing more than making sure a child could learn another language. And then the third part of it was that they said they were looking for people who care for something greater than themselves. And I was also working with masters in history and theology. So that part seemed to make sense to me too, from a theological perspective. So like we would do, we use those three elements to do everything we were gonna do for this then unborn child that we still use as part of his life today at 27. You do not look old enough to have a kid that age. I am 57, I'll be 58 in, um, in July. Can you send me some water, whatever it is you're drinking? I will send you some, I will sprinkle it in. I need it because you look good. You do <laughs> not you look your much. age. Thank you very much. I'm, okay. That is the goal. I made that's an, that's another thing that the child promised made me promise that I would do. Um, and when I when he was four, uh, he was starting to play soccer. And you can cut me off anytime if I'm saying too much. He, no. The uh, the parents would stand on the field and we would yell and scream at our children to run faster and do stuff that we weren't doing. And you'd look around and you're like, man, everybody here is overweight and smoking and but we're asking these children to do all this incredible stuff that we're not willing to do and i made him a promise that i would never be that father i would never be the father to ask you to do something that i was not committed to doing myself so that year beginning it was january 1 of 2000 i was a 211 pounds probably the heaviest i'd ever been and i promised him that i was going to get in the best shape of my life and so by the time i turned 35 that year July 15th, I weighed 174 pounds and competed in my first bodybuilding contest. How did you do it? How did you lose the weight? Um, I counted calories. I uh, counted my water. I counted protein. I, I exercised a certain amount of time every single day. I, I looked at him as my, my motivation. I just really did not want, as you understand, I did not want to lie to my child. When you have the kind of background that I had, what I what I strive so desperately to do is to not be like my father, um, to to always be better in many in most aspects. I just can't say that people, my father has no well he's deceased now, but has nothing Sorry. that was redeeming because we all have something that's redeemable. But I wanted to be better, and part of that was being the best that I could be, certainly physically for for my child. Have you patted yourself on the back for breaking the cycle? Nah, no, nah, because it's a journey. And I realized that, you know, I, I, hey, today, I, you know, I'm, all I can be is the best I can be today. And hopefully if the if the creator, the universe, spirit, God, or whatever it is that people choose to call or believe in gives me another day, then hopefully I'll set things in motion to be better tomorrow. But I do know people can make one mistake and ruin everything. And I and so for that reason, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to pat myself on the back. I'm just going to be grateful. Well, I'm going to virtually pat you on the back and say, <laughs> right. from one to another, great job on breaking that cycle because it's supposedly not very easy. 
at all. At all. So with that being said, could you tell the listeners what the 10 aces are? I can't tell you all of them, but I can give you some idea of them I have in front of me. So adverse childhood experiences are, um, I think they were first um, became a thing in like the 19 late seventies, the uh, CDC center, the center for disease control and um, Kaiser Permanente, which is a large hospital in the San Francisco area. I did a study on the things that were keeping people from potentially being successful. And often we're looking at children and, and realizing that some of the things that we were accusing kids of being like um, inattentive, um, um, attention deficit disorder, like high, high, you know, inability to sit still and so forth, were not just things related to, to the kids' genetics. They were oftentimes things related to the things that were happening in a, chi- in a child's life. So living in a home where a parent was abused, living in a home where someone abused alcohol or drugs, living in a home where someone was was um, was incarcerated or been a part of the a penal system in some fashion, uh, living in a home where children were going without meals or where a home um, where your home life was unstable or maybe living having a a place to live on a routine basis was not guaranteed. Those are some of the things. If you were sexually abused, if a mom was was abused physically or sexually, or another sibling was abused physically or sexually, those are some of the things that um, make up the, the first child experiences. And, you know, I, I would love to know your opinion of it. And everybody has their own opinion. That's what makes, you know, Rocky Road and mint chocolate chip. I get that. But... <laughs> What do you think about, like, when we were in school, what was the worst we had to worry about? Like, we had to worry about who's going to get what on the playground, um, playing dodgeball, you know. Are you going to get the crispy fries in the lunchroom? And and now we have a podcast, uh, Teen Talk, where I actually have teenagers because they don't feel like their voices are heard. And I want them to know that they do have a safe platform. We welcome you unconditionally. It's hosted by teens and that they can and are valued that they need to be heard. And they they talk about like the, the panel I had on at one point, Nate said that their biggest fear about starting school was not getting shot. And I, I couldn't grasp that concept because that was nothing we worried about. We never had to worry about that at all. Why do you think these kids are, are going and turning into violence into the school place? Okay, a couple of things. You, you said a mouthful. So I grew up in Gary. <laughs> I do that. I grew, no, it's good. It's good. So I grew up in Gary, Indiana. So um, growing up in a place where there's violence is not, that's not new to me. So when I, when I, for some people it's new. When I was, when I was growing up in Gary, Gary was considered the murder capital of the world. It was considered. So, so I grew up in a place where you were, you know, always a little bit on pins and needles, but it was kind of the way you lived and your head was always on the swivel and you could go somewhere and get in a fight and you might go somewhere on occasion and someone might shoot someone. That that was common, but not to the extent that it is today. I wasn't worried about going to school and being a mass school shooting or any of those things. I think one of the, the reasons why we have more of those kind of experiences today is because we do we have elevated the speed in which society moves, but we've not elevated this, the requirements of being a parent. So, so for the first seven years, so bear with me, the first seven years, Aristotle 
said this years ago, obviously very long time ago, over 2000 years ago, that if you bring me a child by seven, I'll show you the man. Now, Aristotle was just thinking about men, but if Aristotle, I'm sure could speak today, Aristotle would say, if you bring me a, a, a human by seven, I'll show you the adult. That what happens in the first seven years of a person's life is indicative of what the person would most likely do for the rest of their lives. And today we live in a nation of outsourcing. So we outsource everything to everyone. There's very few parents who are responsible for being parents. Usually, if you are a responsible parent, you are someone who who may have lots of resources. Because if you don't have lots of resources, then you're trying to work a whole lot of jobs trying to provide for your family. And now you don't live in communities anymore like you used to, where other people pitch in and help out. There's no real village. So now your children are trying to figure out how to raise themselves. And they're doing that mostly through through video and TV and podcasts and whatever it is that draws, draws their attention. And most of the things that draw their attention are not things that are necessarily good for them. But they weren't, that's the same thing for us. The things that would really draw our attention would be things that weren't necessarily good for us, but we might have people in the community that would help us to steer us in the right direction. Today, unfortunately, children don't have a lot of that. There's been a whole lot of outsourcing. So I'm not really surprised um, to see things go the direction that they have because we don't have any real consistency about what we want from our future citizens of this nation. One other thing I'd say, here's an example. The United States has uh, secretaries for just about everything. We have secretary of energy. We have secretary for treasury. We have secretary for transportation, but we don't have any secretary for citizenship. We have no secretary for citizenry. So you say, hey, we want people to behave differently and be more responsible and respectful to our fellow human being. Well, who's the guide for that? It's not the parent. Absolutely, absolutely. When you you have a baby, you take a Lamaze class, but once the baby's born, there's no class to tell you what to do, how to navigate this journey. So you spend the first seven years on your own, and then one day you say, I'm going to drop my children off at school to somebody else's children who spent the first seven years of their life without any direction either. And just because they're called teacher, we somehow assume that they got it all figured out and they don't have it any more figured out than, than the parents who dropped the children off. What do you think about there? There was a small community out West that approved paddling again in this time um, for the teachers to do to the kids. And I, I did a, a show. We have another uh, podcast. It's unstoppable. And we talked about it on there because, and I'm going to keep it, you know, down to this audience level because it, this is a more cleaner um, audience um, on <laughs> unstoppable, which I'd love to have you on. It, it's okay. You, you can go and say whatever you want. We really give our opinion. We really vocalize our thoughts and what's going on in this world and what we can do to change it. So sometimes, you know, some things are said that, you know, it, it's pretty intense. But um, anyway, so when I heard about this, I said, wait a minute, let me make sure I understand this. I advocate for the safety of families. I advocate for the safety of you and I advocate for the safety of me, male, female, trans, doesn't matter. I don't care. Nobody has the right to put their hands on you unwarranted period. I don't care who you are. And the thing is, is that these kids are coming from a situation where they're either watching their parents, male or female, one's the aggressor, one's the victim, and they have no outlet. So they go to school and now we're giving the authority, which I wouldn't give, to allow someone to put their hands on their kid in a school environment. So now you're saying, okay, 
Well, I'm watching it at home and now I go to school and I get it. So I have no outlet to, to release. And then they wonder why we have the situations that we have going on right now. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that if hypothetically you call CPS because you believe that you struck somebody's child, but then that teacher who has no relation to that child at all, they can strike your child. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just kind of missing the boat on this one as to how that even works. What are your yeah. thoughts about that? I don't think that's first of all, I don't think hitting anybody is is productive. Right. So I don't I don't think it's productive as a parent to hit a child. And I don't think it's productive, certainly for someone who is not the child's parent, who the child um has no I shouldn't that's not shouldn't say that. The surprising thing is that the only institution that has a has a um, compulsory relationship, like a a legal contractual relationship with a child, our schools, because parents can, as you know, parents can give up their children. Um, faith based institutions don't have to be bothered with children. Businesses don't have to be bothered with children, but schools have the responsibility to educate them and in many cases feed them at least twice a day. So they do have a compulsory relationship. I don't think though hitting someone is a is a way to make you to endure you to someone someone else or convince someone else. Certainly a a a mind that is not completely formed understand the rationalization behind why hitting you is somehow a good idea. It's a terrible idea. And and in fair full disclosure, I spanked my son once and it was the worst thing that I ever did. I cried for two days. And yeah, so I, all I could think of was I'm going to make him hate me like I hated my father. I'm I'm going to be my father. And so um, I, we're we're so sophisticated. We can we can send people to space. We can have conversations with someone in another part of the world over a video screen. We can have cars that drive without people driving. But yet we can't figure out how to raise people and get people to be good human beings without beating them. That seems archaic. Right. And then in today's society and school, you know, I, I homeschool my daughter because she's medically homeschooled. And I'm so glad that I have that opportunity because we spend so much great quality time together. But when she's with her friends, she's like, Oh, I, I know the Dewey decimal system. And they're like, the what, the what, what is that? And they would say, you know, what is that definition? She'd pull up, her dictionary and she'd start looking it up and they're like no just ask alexa and she's like oh no 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 Mm-mm. yeah i'm gonna look it up in a dictionary and they don't teach spelling anymore they don't teach writing anymore um everything is on a tablet and you know even grammar is not applicable anymore so it's like oh check your grammarly and it'll change all your words and your punctuation for you what happens down the road when you have to do a signature? They don't teach cursive. So what what is happening to the generations where when you know you have to sign a document and let's say that you know at some point in time the electricity, I mean the electrical devices don't work. So how are you going to write notes? How are you gonna, you know, do anything you need to do if you don't even know how to write? You don't know how to spell because all you're doing I, I totally go with the whole like learning how to type, learning how to do office and those things because it's a necessity but doing it every single step of the way 
I don't agree with. Like, I don't agree with the fact that the kids in, you know, school, regardless of the grade, can go in and bring cell phones into school. Um, I don't think that's right. Like, you know, you hear, oh, well, I'm in third, fourth, fifth, whatever grade, and I have my phone. And it's like, why? Why are you? And then they're Instagramming and then they're on all these other, you know, platforms. And and even if you have your parental settings up, it doesn't matter because they're getting in anyway. Mm. It doesn't matter. It it you could have the best parental gu- uh, restriction guidance everywhere on there, and it's still coming through. And I, you know, it's like, what do you do? Like when we have a meal, there's no hats on, there's no electronics, there's no earbuds, there's no phones, and I even have a phone jail, and that will go in there. <laughs> she has a restricted amount of time um, on the device; it goes off. She doesn't get it until all schoolwork is done. She has a handwritten book report due to me every Friday. Um, my husband has two kids who I consider mine now as well. But when they come over to visit, they bring their game system in their suitcase. Like that's what they pack and they'll do it 20 hours a day. And I'm like, I am going to pull out my hair because I'm like, don't you guys, let's go outside. You know, my daughter's like, Hey, let's go outside for a little while and play with the dogs. And they're like, Oh no, why don't you want to, you know, go see a friend, have a friend over whatever. I just FaceTime with them. Why do I want to go to their house? And it's, what is going on? Like, you know, the phone is making us lose so much that, you know, my grandparents who were the world to me, my grandfather, we're going way back, is it used to say to me, if I wanted whoever's on the other end of that corded phone in the other room that you'd have to pull the phone and the cord to at my table, I would have invited them to dinner, hang it up, you know? <laughs> And I've always had that that mentality. Like, you know, it's it's like if I have to text you to get your attention, something is really wrong. Yes. Um, is that a, is there is there a question in that? Because you said a lot. I'm like, I don't know that I need to add anything. <laughs> to that, but, you but, and I just seem to be on the same place. But... Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm 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 with you. Funny thing is, my son doesn't have any real social media presence. He got off social media years ago, which is interesting because he's an engineer, and computer scientist. See, I'm on it, but I'm only on it and I don't do anything personal. It's all about helping others. And then that's it. That's it. You're not going to hear me be like, ah, somebody cut me off on the road today. Kind of, you know, that's just crazy waste of oxygen. Um, So tell me, because you seem to be right on it with it. How would you tell other people? How can they begin? Like, um, how would you design a life template that maybe would help the child and even us make real changes? I think the the point, some of the points you're making about um, what's going on with technology, I think it's less about the technology and more about the people. I I, I sort of find it interesting that we talk a lot about structures and systems and and artificial intelligence, and we don't talk about actual supposed intelligence and the humans responsible for the systems and structures. I think the the huge failing is us and not so much the the tools that we use. The the phone is great, right? The phone is an absolute great thing. If I need to call Victoria, I can call Victoria anywhere in the world. And if I wanted to be able to communicate with Victoria instantly because I had a problem and I needed your help, I could communicate with you instantly anywhere in the world. That's a phenomenal thing to have. It is. The problem is that the people who have it having are not as sophisticated as the tool that they that they have and we don't spend enough time figuring out how to be better humans so that's 
that's my 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 I guess my lifelong objective is to figure out ways so that we can all be better humans that humanity in itself can improve um and I can spend because the tools are here there's nothing that the tools are not going away and the creators of the tools are going to continue to create the tools this is up to us who you are the users of the tools to decide if we're going to allow the tools to use us or we're going to use the tools so what's a good way to start because I, I I'm pretty sure that you and I are on the same page when it comes to the fact that I think the most important person in a child's life is the parent. Absolutely. And Absolutely. they are going to learn what to do and what not to do. Absolutely. So I think, you're structuring. Yeah. I'm thinking it, what I like to have people to do before they even consider becoming a, a parent is to consider a, a certain number of things about themselves before you embark upon that. Man, I started writing my son something some years ago. People would ask me, well, what would you tell your son? And I said, ah, interesting. And I started writing a book called Hold On Before You Unzip Your Pants. And I thought, man, maybe I won't, maybe I won't call it that. It's a cute, it's a catchy title, right? It's it is a catchy title. And I said, here are 10 things I'd want you to think about before. If, so if you could imagine being with this woman and you're you're excited and this is the moment I, I if you could pause hit a pause button in your mind for a second and start asking yourself these questions because whatever you do could create a life that then you and she are responsible for and I'd ask questions such as one do you know who you are and do you know who she is and by that do you know who's poured into your life to make you who you are and by that, do you know who's poured in her life, who made her who she is? And then there's these whole series of things, questions you could ask from A through Z about who you are. Do you know your mother? Because most men choose their mothers and, and most women choose their fathers. But we choose not a mate, we choose a parent. And a, and a mate and a parent are two very different things. And have you figured out that you have to find a way to differentiate between what you think you want as your mama, uh, son, and what you need as a man? These are, and, and vice versa. So there's a series of questions that I would say ask. And then one of the questions that it has is, if whoever you choose, is this going to be sustainable? We talk about sustainability in science and the air and the water and so forth, but is it sustainable such that if the two of you all cannot make it, can you sustain a relationship well enough that that child will have all of the opportunity to be, to live up to their potential? And if you can't, I need you to zip your pants up <laughs> and go a different <laughs> direction. Right? If, if, you, if these answers don't turn out the way you think they should, I need you to stop and, and reconsider. So that's the very first thing I would do before we even embark about thinking about uh, recreate uh, creation uh, or procreation, I should say, we should think about who we are and who that other person is before we engage. And now once you engage and, and you say, okay, that's, this is the person, then, then I got to figure out, okay, well now what are your hopes and dreams for this life that you're going to give? Because everything that you do should be based upon what it is that you hope and dream for that life. Hopefully you want that, that life to have a bigger and bolder life than you. And if you do, then what are the plans for that? I think for me, the 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 dream is like a GPS. Again, the phone. You and I, you could tell me where you were. I could tell you where I am. And we could 
ask our phones, Alexa, Siri, or Google, whatever, and, and they would then tell us, okay, here's the steps you take to get to that place. Turn here, go that way, 3,000 miles, et cetera. But I've said, first thing we have to know is what those hopes and dreams are. And once we know those hopes and dreams, we can start working backwards to make that a reality. You ever take a drive and not have your GPS on? I have. I do. I, yeah. I do. And I always tell my daughter, how do we get home from here? And she's like, wait for this biomarker or wait for this landmark or whatever. And it's like, we're so just programmed to GPS and go home that it's almost like, you know, you can just zone out and draw and just drive. And it's, you know, you need to, you have this amazing brain and you need to use it. Stop, you know, utilizing all of these things that need to be charged all the time, which is not yourself, (laughs) you know? So tell, please tell me you have like 50 kids. I don't have one. What? I have one. Why did you only have one? Because the way that you raised your son is phenomenal. See, that's why you should have had like this. I have one biological child and I have a whole lot of surrogate children today. But (laughs) yes, I have one biological child. I'm known to some people's children now as pops, which is the funniest thing in the world to me because I have some gentlemen in my life who I've called pops and now some younger men and women call me pops. So it's it's kind of cool, but no, uh, my wife had some health issues and um, no, it's okay. And it is what it is. It, and so we weren't able to have any, any additional children. And then there was a point in time when, when we considered it and I asked my son, um, what do you think about having a sibling? And he was like, for what? <laughs> <laughs> like, I got the keys to the castle. Why would I want to share them? Right. So, <laughs> so, so it was it was fine. So no, we have one and, and I'm grateful for the one we have. That's amazing. And you light up when you talk about him, which is just phenomenal because you don't see that much anymore. You really, no. really don't. And that's so sad. So yeah. tell me about your other five books, because I am so intrigued. So I've written the first book was it's called Raising Superman. And it's a collection of letters that I wrote to a unborn, started writing to an unborn child. Finally, somebody else. Because I wrote to my daughter when she was oh, still in the womb. Very good. So yeah, I was, but I should write notes about what I wanted to happen. Cause again, I didn't want to be my dad. So like, okay, dude, then if you don't want to be him, you need to have something that tells you what it is you're going to be. It's one thing to say what you don't want. It's another thing. These are lessons that I learned from him, which are good, but it's one thing to say what you don't want, but there's a whole nother thing about having a plan, a strategy, which is a strategy is more than a plan about how you're going to make that happen. So I wrote these notes and so forth about what I wanted for his life. But this at two, he decided that he wanted to walk to me, would walk with me one day to the mailbox, which he would routinely do. And for one, some reason on this particular day, he said he wanted mail. He asked, "Where's his mail?" And I say, hey, "Man, there's nothing good in these mailboxes." And he's like, "Dad, but I want mail." I say, "Remember, there's bills and there's junk mail." He said, "But Dad, I want mail." So I started writing him. Um, I bought greeting cards and postcards, and I would mail them to him. And you know, I go to the office, and a couple of days later, of course, because it was snail mail, the letter would show up, and Hey, today I got mail today, and I said, "Yes, son, I know I I know what I wrote you," and <laughs> we would go through this for a while. And I said, "Hey, man, listen, I'm not going to keep writing you and reading to you. This is ridiculous." And he said, "Well, teach me to read." So my son learns to read off of the letters that his dad wrote, oh. and so what was just greeting cards and postcards ended up becoming letters because there was so much that I wanted to say. I realized that it wasn't about writing him at all; it was about a catharsis for me. Like I was pouring out to this two-year-old as if he was 22. And I was pouring out to this three-year-old as if he was 43. And so the letters were not written to a child at his age. They were written to a 
to a grown to a grown man at various points in his life. So that so that's the very first thing he wrote. And he's the one that authorized and actually told me that it's something we should publish. So we did. Wow. So tell me about then, the rest of your books. Then I wrote a book called Stop the Bus because I was so uh, ultimately frustrated with the way education is in this in this country. And it felt like a, a blind bus driver with a whole bunch of people not knowing who wants to be on and off the bus uh, driving all over the country. Um, so it's, it's 31 essays, 300 words or less about things we could do very easily to change the course of, of education in this country. I wrote a book called it's a jungle out there. My favorite movie is The Lion King, and it's what convinced me that I could actually become a father, that um, I found 40 plus lessons in The Lion King and extracted and thought all parents could learn from The, the Lion King and have this dream that one day Disney will call me and allow me to offer a camp for parents. And the camp will be called um, It's a Jungle Out There. We will use the, the Lion King theme to help prepare parents in this sort of Lamaze style way of things we should be doing with our children. But there are 10 lessons in that book. Um, I wrote a book called um, Journey Forward. And each day I wake up and I spend the first 20 minutes of my, my day silently writing about my life the way I'd like it to be as opposed to how it is. So you said earlier, hey, you're, you're a really nice guy. Well, in my journal, that's what I write, that I want to be as you just described me. And so I, so that means that maybe some of the journal is manifesting because each day for the last four plus years, that's what I've done. I've written over 1,300, I think 1,300 entries um, daily about what it is that I want if my life could be exactly what I want it to be. Naim and I, who's my son, we wrote a children's book over the pandemic called The Amazing World of STEM. And it's a story about an eight-year-old by the name of Stuart Tyson Elmore Morgan, who was a budding engineer and has decided that he's tired of waiting on adults to fix the planet and that he and his friends will find ways to do it themselves. How so, cute is that? Yeah. So we've written, we wrote the first edition during the pandemic and we're we will uh, release the second, the newest edition. I think they said June is our day, but yeah, so that's that'll be done. And then he's written a book called um, What Are We Going to Do Today? And so it's 52, 52 weekly things parents can and should do with their children for little to no money. And so they started out as tweets that I, that I used to, to offer about 10 years ago. And he took the tweets and turned the tweets into a story that um, he could use, he could write so that parents could then use to be engaged in their children's lives and encourage children to read at an early age. Can you give us an example of one? Yeah, one of them is simple as um, having a pillow fight with your child. Like just the, the simple things you can do to have fun with a kid. Some of them is just to tell your child that you love them. Some one of them, I think, is to write your child a letter and tell them how much they mean to you. So they're just that's one of them is like going to the kitchen and cook a meal together. It's great for love and it's something about math and science. So yeah, yes, yeah, fifty-two things. Like I said, I'll send you the I'll send you the book. Oh, thank you. It's, yeah, I love going to like the dollar store and getting those huge marshmallows and going outside and having marshmallow fights. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's like the best. But my husband and my daughter are huge pranksters. I mean, huge pranksters. So they're always trying to look for the next big laugh. But 
we always do that. Like, you know, my daughter had so many seizures and coding when she was little that her frontal lobe didn't fully, well, it's still developing, but it's way behind okay. where it should be. Okay. So math is quite challenging for her. So we would do things like, Hey, if you want to play and we want to do things, then let's take this cupcake because she has a feeding tube. So let's take this cupcake bin and let's put the cupcake holders in there. So now we have 12. Well, if we wanted three blue and three red and three yellow and three green, can you show me how you'd put them in? And so she would have to do it that way. And then it was, well, how many rows of each? And then she was learning that way because it was more hands-on and it mm -hmm. not only that, but it was time together. And then we would get coloring books and it was, what is that? Well, I, I have a master's in science, so I would show her how to sign red and then we would do it in Spanish. And then, you know, it was just different ways and it's so hands-on and you cannot buy that time back. It is so valuable, you know, I mean, and then it's hysterical to watch her get into like the battle of the wits where she'll be like, I can name all of the Greek gods and goddesses. What have you got to bring me? And it's just <laughs> hilarious to watch that interaction. And those are things that you can't buy that. You can't go anywhere and find anything like that. Like we have board game nights. We do something um, that we do when she's had like the best day or even not such a great day. We do something called A through Z, um, okay. which helps executive function disorder where we say, okay, write down A through Z on a, on a notepad. And then like, we'll say, um, name a food, fruit, or beverage for every letter of the alphabet. And then it really makes wow. her think. And wow. then we do that or A through Z, everything you think would be so much fun to do. And, you know, or jobs, A through Z, something different. And we all take a turn. So all three of us get to pick the topic and, and we write it all down and then we share it. And okay. it is just so, you know, it's like people don't spend that time together to do those things. And I don't care what she's doing. If I'm like, hey, you want to do A through Z? Everything stops. Like, it's like, okay, let's go. I want to do it right now. Can we do it now? Can we, can we, can we? And, you know, I'm like, well, we got to finish our schoolwork. Okay, okay, I'm going to, all right. But I mean, when she was <laughs> in sixth grade, she was reading on a um, senior level. I mean, just, mm -hmm. you know, because, and it's like, how can you not just soak up those moments like that? You know, I mean, that's so important and valuable. She wrote her first book um, and released it and it's called I am kitten and it reached number one on Amazon when she oh, okay. released it. And okay. it's all about how, um, he was my soulmate. Not that I'm going to call him out, but I will. Um, he was my soulmate and then we broke up. And the only time my entire life I ever rebounded was with my ex who beat me the whole time I was pregnant. Well, he and I got back together. My soulmate and I got back together and he's adopted her. That's the only person she has told him from inception. My mom has said the only person who would ever be my dad is you. And mm -hmm. so he has taken her as his own. He's adopted her. And literally like the book was a Christmas present for him. I am kitten because he calls her kitten. Okay. okay. And the whole book is just so heart formed about how, their relationship started and the bond that they have between each other. And it's so sweet. And she's working on other ones um, for the special needs community. And it's like, you know, just to sit down and say, okay, we can do this. Cause she's like, well, my mom published, why can't I publish? And it's like, well, come on, we'll do it together. And it's just those memories that you can't get back, you know, that are so valuable and, and you just cherish them. Yeah, well, you, you just want to say, put the game controller down and make a memory it's not a babysitter 
No, but you you've given your daughter something again that um, few parents give their children, which is the understanding that life is just made up of billions of nows, and no now is bigger or less important than the next. But the next one is not guaranteed, so you have to be present right now. And most people don't understand that. And I don't know if that's because you are a, a child of of I don't want to say adversity. Would you say which a, a child of adversity, raising a child of adversity? Because I don't. That's kind of the way I look at it. In some ways, imagine that if if we had no adversity, then it would essentially be like living where land was flat, and without peaks and valleys. That's all. That's all land is, right? So, um, you're a child of adversity who's figured out ways to to ma- ma- master and maneuver through adverse situations and and sometimes you find lots of joy and happiness and sometimes you don't you find what's on the other end of it but but you keep on doing it and you do it in the now many people don't understand that so that's that's a gift that you've given her but perhaps that gift has also come from the fact that from your own trials and tribulations you are amazing. I could just sit here and talk to you forever. If people wanted to find you besides the fact I'll link you everywhere possible, where would they do that? You know, I'm going to give you my personal contact information so you can find me anywhere, but everybody else. You're um, stuck with I, me now. Yeah, I'm cool. I'm I'm good. I'm good to be, I'm happy to be doing that. And I'm happy you would uh, stick with me. So I, um, easiest way to find me is Nathaniel, N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L-A, as in Adonis, which is what my mother should have named because I'm more like chocolate Adonis than I am my actual middle name. But Nathaniel A. Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R.com. And that's that's it. We're actually working on a, a redesign of our of the website and stuff now. So well, go, check, that, yeah. go check out our website. I did the whole thing myself and let me know if you need did any you? help. Okay, cool. It's a contagious smile.com. Like I did the whole thing and I did it one-handed. So See, well, that's what I said. You look, look at you like you're the master of. No, I don't go university. that far. You are the master of master university. Okay, how about that? You are the, um, you are the student of mastering adversity, the continuous, recursive, improving student of mastering adversity. How about that? I like it. I like it. Where can <laughs> we get your books? Where do we find them? Wherever books are sold. Yes. Amazon, yes. Barnes and Nobles etc apple books they're all there fantastic you have been such a light thank you so so much if you could leave the listeners with a message what would that message be i want to leave the message the messengers the the listeners with a message specifically to you which is say i'm grateful for you oh i'm grateful grateful for for you If today is the last conversation i have if you are the last person that i speak to i hope that I am who I want to be when my time on this planet is up. And so I have never cried on an interview, but you have almost, you have almost done it. There have been minutes here I've been sitting like, man, all right, dude, hold it together. So I am really grateful. You have been like chicken soup to a soul. Oh, I'm going to have you talk to my husband. <laughs> You're I'm, good. I'm happy, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> but I suspect he doesn't need any help from me. He's got you. You've got him. That's so sweet. I'm going to talk to your wife. She gets five-star kudos. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> Thank you, Nate, so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Take care of yourself. You too.